0: Well, turn with me to Matthew 5. We're looking at verses 43 to 48. We started doing this last week. And uh, we want to continue. Let me read this passage. It says, You have heard that it was said, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, we began looking at this passage last week. And uh, as I told you last week, uh, what we're going to what we're doing with this is we're going to look at what the Old Testament taught and then what uh, the how the rabbis perverted that teaching with their traditions and then. Finally, we will examine the divine perspective that Jesus taught. Now, last week we looked at the teaching of the Old Testament. We saw there it says at the beginning of verse 43, you shall love your neighbor. And that phrase is only a part of what Leviticus 19.18 says. The, The complete statement is you shall love your neighbor, how? As yourself. In Matthew 22, Jesus reiterated that when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On um, These two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And in Romans 13, 8, Paul wrote, that, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Uh, so Paul says love sums up the whole law. Jesus says love sums up the whole law. And so in Matthew 5, when our Lord begins to, speak about loving, he's touching on that which sums up the whole law. Uh, What did the Old Testament really teach about loving your neighbor? How broad is that term neighbor? And we looked last week at Deuteronomy 22, and we saw there in that first few verses, he uses the term countryman, uh, which is literally brother. And it says that your brother, your fellow countryman, is your neighbor who you are to treat with love and kindness by helping him recover his property and give help to him when he needs it. We looked at Exodus 23, and we saw there that the term brother includes those who are your enemies. It doesn't mean a foreign enemy. Uh, it, It refers to your personal enemy. So that's where we determine the meaning of neighbor. Neighbor is as big as need. So when the Bible says, love your neighbor, it simply widens up to encompass anyone who has a need, no matter how they feel about you. Uh, We looked at Job 31, and we saw in verse 29, Job said, have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exulted when evil befell him? In other words, have I been excited and thrilled when my enemy got what he deserved? And the implication is if I did that, I would have sinned. Uh, then we looked at Psalm seven three, David pinpoints the fact that it's wrong to be evil towards those who are good to you, and it's wrong to be evil towards those who are evil to you. In Psalm thirty five twelve, David said of his enemies, "They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul." In other words, when they repaid me with evil after I did good to them, my soul was in sorrow. Uh, verse fourteen, he says that. My enemy is to be my friend in the sense that I sorrow for them like I sorrow for my own mother uh, proverbs twenty four twenty nine here's a command we saw uh, do not say thus shall I do to him as he's done to me I will render to the man according to his works so in other words don't say don't get I'm not going to get mad I'm going to get even that's wrong in uh, Proverbs 25, 21, there's the sum of it all. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So what the Old Testament teaches is that your enemy is your brother, your neighbor. Your your enemy in a human sense is your brother, not in a spiritual sense, but in the sense that you're both human beings. Then we looked at some illustrations. We saw Abraham and Lot when there was a strife between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen and they became enemies or squabbling with each other all the time. Abram ended the fight. He says, Lot, you take whatever you want of the land. I'll take whatever's left over. Uh, you pick out whatever you like. You can have it. That's how to treat an enemy. Give him the very best that there is. We saw another illustration in 1 Samuel 24 with Saul and David when David had an opportunity to kill Saul. Uh, and he passed it up and he, uh, uh, he says we behave righteously towards others. Another illustration we saw Second 2 Samuel 16 where Shammai was cursing and calling out David and throwing rocks and dust at him. And uh, uh, Shammai is saying, you're getting what you deserve, David. And Abishai, uh, David's general, wanted to go over there and cut off his head. And David says, no, don't bother with him. Leave him alone. Let him curse. Perhaps Yahweh has told him to do so. So David's heart was right. And rather than respond with deadly force against his enemy, he obeyed the teaching of God's law. And so it's easy in our human world to allow things to develop so that we become enemies with another person and we become bitter and hostile. And instead of reaching out in love to them, instead of seeing them as our brother and our neighbor, as the Old Testament does, uh, the, like We begin to see them as an enemy. But the Old Testament is very clear. and Jesus is in absolute agreement with it. And then we started looking at the perversion of rabbinic tradition. Look at all of verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the rabbinic, rabbinical tradition uh, that they taught. They took the Old Testament command, love your neighbor as yourself, dropped off the as yourself and added and hate your enemy. Uh, the Old Testament, has, as we saw, had this broad definition of who your neighbor is. These guys didn't. They had a very narrow view. They perverted the command in two ways. One was omission. The other was addition. They obviously, the omissions, they left out the words as yourself. Uh, rather convenient omission. Uh, in their state of self-righteous pride, that phrase just didn't fit into their system. And so rather than be trapped in a situation in which they would have to treat others as equal to themselves, they dropped it. Uh, I mean, you know, suppose we were only told that we had to love our neighbors and it didn't say as yourself. Uh, you know, just you can love them at a distance, treat them a little less than you treat yourselves. How, well, how do we love ourselves? Well, you know, when we love someone, we serve their needs and all of us serve our own needs, don't we? Uh, We have an unfeigned, unhypocritical love for ourselves. Uh, There are some days when, in fact, there are no days when you fall out of love with yourself. Uh, You might have days you're a little despondent or depressed, but you're still in love with yourself. Uh, And uh, you love yourself all the time. Uh, We're all working on our own behalf. We're all very concerned about our own welfare, our own comfort, our own safety, our own interests, our own health. Uh, in fact, that's one reason many people are depressed. They're depressed because they aren't getting what they think they deserve. And so they become depressed about it. And that's, and Jesus says, we're to love our neighbors, everyone else, even our enemies, as we love ourselves. In other words, we're to have that same totally consuming, unfeigned, fervent, habitual, permanent love for others so that we're concerned for their interests, their needs, their wants, their desires, their hopes, their ambitions, and the, and everything that we, about them, so that we are prompted to do whatever we can to make sure that their welfare, safety, comfort, and interests are met. Whatever they need and want, we're anxious to fulfill on their behalf. The standard's very, very high, isn't it? Uh, Love your neighbors, yourselves, a very high standard. Humanly speaking, it is impossible Uh, because humanly speaking, we're totally absorbed with ourselves, but that's the way we're to love. But the scribes and Pharisees weren't interested in that, so they just dropped it. They just omitted the as yourself, and then they perverted the standard by addition, too. They added something else. What was it? Hate your enemy. Hate your enemy. Hate your enemy. That's really the logical extension of their perverted thinking. Uh, They said, well, God commanded our ancestors to wipe out the Canaanites and the Malachites and and, uh, be nasty to the Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites. So then, since they're our enemies, we ought to hate them. And of course, because they knew that God had chosen Israel out of all the nations and set his special covenant love on them, they considered themselves the elite, far better than any of the Gentiles. And so they said, our neighbors are the Jews, not the Gentiles. So that's what the Pharisees believed. Only the Jews qualified as one's neighbor. But then they went further. They said that not only did that, they said that only the Jews qualified as neighbors, but among the Jews, only certain Jews qualified. Uh, Certain Jews did not qualify as neighbors. For example, look out, turn over to Matthew 9. Uh, for a moment. Matthew 9, 9 and 10 says here, As Jesus went on from there, that's Capernaum, the city that he settled in, according to Matthew 4, 13. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now notice that there are two categories of people listed there. What are they? Tax collectors, sinners. Tax collectors were considered to be disloyal treasonists and extortionists who had sold out Rome for the money. And so they were despised by the people. And then there were... The sinners, those were the people whose sins were known publicly, people such as prostitutes, thieves, and drunkards. And verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? So the Pharisees said their neighbors were the Jews, but only the Jews who weren't tax collectors or sinners. In fact, they they caught a woman, if you remember, they caught a woman in the act of adultery one time. They tried to trap Jesus into saying that she should be stoned to death. Interestingly, they didn't bring along the man who was participating in the act. Apparently, he was okay in their mind, but she wasn't. So this was, uh, it was a very carefully defined neighbor. Uh, But that wasn't all. Look over at John 7. Flip over to John 7, uh, beginning at verse 46. In this passage, they went even further. In this verse, the Pharisees are talking to the officers who they had sent to arrest Jesus, but who came back empty-handed. And, they, and, they, and the officers come back and they say, verse 46, never had a man spoken the way this man speaks. And the Pharisees tell them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of Pharisees has believed in him, has he? And when then they say this in verse 49. But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. In other words, they say, this rabble mob of uneducated riffraff with no commitment to the law and our pharisaical traditions is cursed. So they eliminated the tax collectors. They had eliminated the public sinners. And they had eliminated the rabble mob that wasn't committed to the law like they were. So who, would, who was left to be their neighbors? The people in their own little group. That's who. And if you were in their group, you would be loved. But outside their group, you were an enemy. You were the enemy. Whether you were a tax collector, a sinner, or simply a member of the crowd on the street. They satisfied their proud, self-righteous hearts by concluding that anyone who was not a neighbor was to be hated. In other words, they said, the scripture says to love your neighbor, therefore anyone who is not your neighbor is your enemy and is not to be loved. And the opposite of love is hate, so you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. That's the way they reasoned because they had the perversion in their heart to begin with. Their prejudice found a way. By the way, they didn't read far enough in Leviticus 19 either. They would have read, if they would have read and applied verse 34, I'm sure they read it. They just didn't apply verse 34. They ignored it. They would have seen this. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God says that even non-Jews who live in the land of Israel with them were to be loved as they loved themselves and they conveniently ignored exodus 1249 where god said the same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you uh, there aren't any different laws for different people if you you are to love you are to love and it's to be as broad as the commandment of god is broad now it wasn't only the pharisees who were like this understand that as we've discussed before there were three sects of judaism uh, during Jesus' time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Uh, the Essenes were the, you could call them the hippie cult. Uh, they they were the ones who left town and set up a commune out on the edge of the Dead Sea in an area that is now known as the Qumran. And uh, it's the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And they lived apart from society. They lived out in the wilderness with a very ascetic, austere, antisocial way of life, and they copied, they copied copies of the scriptures. But the Essenes had the same attitude as the Pharisees. Here's a quote from some of their writing. Love all that God has chosen and hate all that he has rejected. Love all the sons of light, each according to his lot in God's community, and hate all the sons of darkness, each according to his guilt in God's vengeance. Um, and then this, quote, the Levites curse all the sons of Belial. End quote. And to them, the sons of Belial were the non-Essenes. So they cursed everyone who wasn't part of their group, just like the Pharisees did. Their love was prejudiced, it was narrow, it was ugly, and it gave them a license to hate everybody. Now if you think, well, Bruce, the Essenes were crackpots. I mean, the Pharisees couldn't have been that bad. Well, then just listen to what the Pharisees wrote. It's just filled with vile hatred. One of the maxims of the Pharisees was this, quote, If a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. For it is written, You shall not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor, End quote. In other words, if you see a Gentile drowning, stand there and enjoy it. Don't save him. He's not your neighbor. And it was that kind of outlook that caused the romans to ponder the question they in fact they charged the jews with being with hating the human race they 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 accused the jews of hating the human race because this viewpoint was so preponderant, uh, preponderant uh, you know overcoming everything in the society now let me just review some of the reasons why they thought they were justified for what they said They wanted a way to hate. They wanted to justify it in their religious system so it wouldn't encroach on their self-righteousness. So they had to invent some way to hate, and no doubt they found a couple of good excuses. One would be the Old Testament command to exterminate the Canaanites. Exterminate the Canaanites. I mentioned that already. Uh, You remember that when God brought Israel into the land of promise, the, the land was filled at that time with the Canaanites who were a vile, wretched people. In fact, archaeology has shown us that there was, has never been a race of people found that were worse than the Canaanites. Uh, they were a cancer on human society of the worst kind. They practiced human sacrifice, massacres of babies, uh, bestiality, violent homosexual orgies, and other gross immoralities. Uh, you name it, the Canaanites did it. And so God told the Israelites, when they came into the land that they were to wipe out the Canaanites. And God said the same thing about the Amalekites. So certainly the Pharisees would have looked at that and said, God is saying to hate your enemies, so it's okay. And some people today have been confused by this. They say, well, how could God be the same God who said, love your enemies, and also ordered the Israelites to wipe out all these people? And so it's kind of confusing at first. But there was another thing that added fuel to their fire, and that's what's known as the imprecatory psalms. Uh, Janetta mentioned these last week when they were here. Uh, Those are the psalms in which David prays for judgment on his enemies. And people have often said, well, how can the Bible say, love your enemies? And then David is praying, oh, God, judge my enemies, punish my enemies, catch them in a trap, catch them in a snare, and so on. Judge them, do away with them, Lord. How can he be praying that if he's supposed to be loving his enemies? And so no doubt they had taken some of these imprecatory psalms and used them as the basis for their hatred. But the problem was that the Pharisees used those to justify their own personal hatred and vendettas. But they missed the point that both the command to destroy the Canaanites and They missed the points of both of them. The the, the command to destroy the Canaanites and the imprecatory Psalms. Because neither of those had anything to do with personal relationships. Just like our study of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, there are certain things which are judicial laws that do not apply in terms of personal relationships. But they confused that. Uh, They had taken that code, an eye for an eye, and dragged it down to the level of interpersonal relationships, made it a way of living on a day-to-day basis. And the same thing is true here. They had taken the judicial act of a holy God in preserving a righteous nation, and they had dragged it down to be a justification for their own personal hatred. Let me show you what I mean by that. When someone goes to the doctor with cancer, And the doctor cuts the cancer out. We don't say that the doctor is cruel, unloving, uncaring, and unsympathetic with no compassion. No. We thank him for cutting the cancer out. Right, Elizabeth? We thank him. And when God said, get rid of the Canaanites, that was not an act of evil. That was an act of goodness to take out of the human race A wretched, filthy, vile people that would do nothing but pollute and corrupt the nation of Israel. And that was a judicial act on God's part. If Israel had followed the Canaanite customs, Leviticus 18.26-30 says that she would have shared their fate. And God wanted to preserve a righteous seed. Why? In order to send a righteous Messiah to redeem the world. And so, in the preservation of Israel, it was, it was a great concern with God's heart that Israel be preserved, and so there was to and they, so that they would be a witness to the world, and He was cutting a cancer out of human society, explaining how it was right for God to order such genocide. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote, quote, "The Wars of Israel were the only holy wars in history." for they were the wars of God against the world of idols, end quote. Um, his point was that Israel's destruction of those people was entirely done as the instrument of God's judgment. Then what about the imprecatory Psalms? What about David calling down all this judgment on his enemies? Uh, look over at Psalm 69 for a moment. Psalm 69, this is a good example. David wrote this when he was fleeing from Absalom. And look what he says, starting at verse 22. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see. And make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. And may they they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. That's some pretty serious stuff, isn't it? David just blasts them, wishing every sort of calamity to befall them. And then he concludes by asking their names be blotted out of the book of life. In other words, send them to hell, Lord. So people read that and they say, well, David doesn't sound very loving toward his enemies. So I guess we don't need to love our enemies. But you miss the point of Psalm 69 if you don't read verse 9 because that explains verses 22 to 28 what does verse 9 say for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me why was David so upset with these guys not because of what they had done to him but because of what they had done to God you see it was not personal believe me david's greatest enemy in his life was his son absalom and david prayed that god would judge his son and god would judge his enemy and yet what happened when david when absalom was killed david cried from the deepest part of his heart oh my son absalom oh absalom my son my son the fact that he prayed for judgment to glorify God and preserve his people didn't mean that he didn't love his son. And those are the things you have to hold in tension with one another. We love the lost and we pray that God would be vindicated and their sins would be stopped, don't we? We love, love our lost family members with all of our hearts and our hearts ache for those without Christ And yet, at the same time, we pray that Jesus would come and set up his kingdom and execute his righteous judgment on unrighteous people, don't we? And that's the way it was with David. It was zeal for God's house that ate him up. He says, I'm not defending myself. It's you, Lord, that I'm defending. See, it's one thing to defend the glory of God and the honor of God. It's something else to hate people personally. And you have to understand these two in balance. The judgments and curse are always judicial, not personal. So what's to be my attitude towards anyone, even my worst enemy? My attitude is to be one of forgiving love. While at the same time, I pray, oh Lord, don't you let your enemies continue to dishonor your name, but take the glory that's due to you. Our attitude toward an enemy is to love him and to pray that God would save him. I'll never forget teaching this class one Sunday about six months after 9-11. The U.S. military was now at war in Afghanistan against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and the CIA and our soldiers were desperately trying to find Osama bin Laden, the terrorist mastermind of that event. And there was no one more despised in our nation at that time than Osama bin Laden. And on that Sunday morning during the prayer request time, High Kletzel requested prayer for his attitude toward Osama bin Laden. He said, I realize that I don't love that man's soul. I don't care if he goes to hell, and that's wrong. I'm to love my enemy and pray for him to repent and be saved. I was stunned. Uh, I'm sure I didn't show it and I said something appropriate, but I remember thinking I stand convicted by that statement uh, because I too would love to see Osama bin Laden go to hell. I don't want him to repent and be saved. And so that morning when I prayed for High's prayer request, I prayed that the rest of us would also understand that we are to love and pray for our enemy. And that if God doesn't save him, that God judges him so that he can bring Christ to be the rightful ruler of this world and set righteousness in its proper place again. See, God punished Adam, but he loved him. God punished Cain, but he loved him. He, God loved the whole world, but he drowned him in a flood. God loved Sodom and Gomorrah, but he burned them to ashes. God loved the nation of Israel, but he has set them aside for a time. God loved his only begotten son, but he let him bear sin and die. And God loves the world today, but he promises that it's going to go up in flames one day. God loves you, but you'll spend eternity in hell if you don't know his son. You see the scribes and Pharisees never made any distinction in this tension. They took judgment passages, and because of their evil, perverse, prejudiced hearts, they allowed them to become justification for them to hate people. They had no love of for justice, only love for vengeance. Look over at Psalm 139 for a moment. I think these verses sum up what I'm trying to say. Let's begin at verse 19 of Psalm 139. David writes, "O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. So he's got the right attitude because he says, Lord, I'm not trying to defend myself against their attacks, but from their attacks on you. So kill them all. They're wicked. They slander. They revile your name. They don't deserve to live. Verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. You say, now wait a minute, David. You hate them? He says, yes, I hate them because they've risen up in rebellion against a holy, righteous, almighty God. God's enemies are my enemies. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it right to be angry because I'm of an offense against us personally? No. Is there such a thing as righteous indignation? Yes. Is it right for me to be angry because someone offends me? No. Is it right for me to be righteously indignant when someone dishonors God? Yes. Yes. Would it have been right for Jesus to say to one of his slanderers, you can't talk to me that way and punch him in the face? No. But when Jesus took a whip and defended the holiness and honor of God, it was right. There's a difference between personal anger and holy wrath. And there's a difference between personal hatred and holy hatred towards those who are God's enemies. That's what David is talking about. He says, Lord, I hate them so much, not because they hate me. I don't care about myself, but I hate what they do to your honorable name. I loathe those who rise up against you. So I hate them, and they are my enemies because of what they've done to you, O God. And then watch this. Watch what he prays in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. In other words, Lord, please check out my heart and make sure my attitude is right. Make certain there isn't some hurtful attitude in me. I've already told you that I hate them because of how they treat you, but you know the reality of my heart. Please make sure that my wrath and hatred is righteous and that it's not a personal vendetta. And lead me in the way that's right and good and eternal. Don't those verses have a lot more meaning when you see them in their context? David isn't simply asking God to check out his heart because he's worried about the daily matters of life. Or because of some everyday sinful pattern. But rather he's asking God to make sure that his wrath and hatred of evil sinners is a righteous anger a righteous hatred. When was the last time that you or I prayed like that about our heart attitude towards those who slander and despise our Lord and his word? Yes, we pray for God's glory to be vindicated. Yes, we pray for an end to the unrighteous who curse his name. Yes, we know that one day there will come a judgment. Judicially, God will act in punishment. But that's for God to do. And in defense of God, we'll uphold his holy name. But in our personal relationships, we are to be characterized by loving our enemies. That'll make us different from everyone else in the world. People in the world love their families and their friends. Most of them do a pretty good job at that. And sometimes they're even compassionate and sympathetic to people who don't have much but people in the world don't love their enemies and that's the way the scribes and the pharisees were they knew nothing of either righteous indignation or righteous love their only indignation was that of personal hatred and their only love was that of self-esteem and all of that brings us to the next perspective which is Jesus' perspective on things. But before I delve into that, let me pause, because what I've been talking about is we've been swimming in the deep end of the theological pool here. So let me open it up for any comments or questions. Yes, Richard. Well,
1: isn't this all consistent with God's uh, monopoly on vengeance? If I hate someone, I am tempted to commit vengeance against them, which is a sin. Mm-hmm. And by, uh, because in the long run, every sin is going to be punished. Vengeance will be taken on every wrong act, including the laundry list of wrong acts I have committed. It just won't be committed. The vengeance will not be perpetrated against me. It has already been. Right. It's on the cross, it's on Christ, yeah. the, the innocent one. But God knows that we couldn't handle it. And because of that, he has kept vengeance to himself. Even the vengeance of the government is you let a jury, who's not a part of the thing, to make the decision: Did the person commit the mm. crime or whatever it is? Is someone going to be punished and not? Is he going to be punished? So to me, it just it makes logical sense. In addition to the fact that it's a commandment of Almighty God.
0: Well, yes, but it makes logical sense to you. Because you have the Holy Spirit residing in you as the resident truth teacher making sure you see that as good and right and logical.
1: Oh, because I'm it
0: because <laughs> <laughs> the world though that the unbeliever who doesn't have the Holy Spirit living in him, vengeance is the logical conclusion that he comes to. So anything else? Yes? The book of life that they
1: refers to never had the lost names written in it did
0: it no it doesn't
1: but he's saying it as if all people don't let
0: there. their names be put there <laughs>
1: but what he says bought it out our meaning saying all names written there and as they die, if they didn't choose christ then they're bought it out
0: it's figurative language don't try to read when, you, when there are many places it's figurative language in the psalms particular wisdom literature don't try to read Every little tiny detail of your Calvinistic doctrine into that. But, but that's not
1: the book of Revelation, that the one from judgment that's opened up. He's not referring to that book. Yeah, he's,
0: he's talking about step, the step. Lamb's book of life. Okay. okay. Okay, anything else? All right. Well, we do have a few minutes. Let's look at, let's start looking. We will not finish this at the divine perspective of Jesus. Let me read again verses 44 to 48. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the Lord's corrective to the error of the Jewish system. And he gives five principles to correct the faulty love of the Pharisees and the scribes. Five short sequential statements that ascend to the very highest statement of all. They have a beautiful flow and ascent, and we'll see them as that as we go through these. Let me just give them to you now. You don't have to write them all down now because we'll all we're going to go through them one at a time. Uh, they are: love your enemies, two; pray for your persecutors, three; manifest your sonship, four; exceed your fellow man, and five; imitate your heavenly father. Let's begin with, love your enemies. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. John MacArthur says this about this statement, quote, here is the most powerful teaching in scripture about the meaning of love. The love that God commands of his people is love so great that it even embraces enemies, quote. Remember what kind of a culture it was around him when jesus spoke these words we've already talked about this wall of separation between jews and gentiles we've talked about the social barricades between the so-called good jews the scribes and the pharisees and the bad jews the tax collectors sinners and the rest of the rabble who didn't know or follow the law very well and about this bible scholar william hendrickson great commentator says this quote All around him were these walls and fences. He came for the very purpose of bursting those barriers so that love, pure, warm, divine, infinite, would be able to flow straight down from the heart of God, hence from his own marvelous heart into the hearts of men. His love overleaped all the boundaries of race, nationality, party, age, sex, etc. When he said, I tell you, love your enemies, he must have startled his audience, for he was saying something that probably never before had been said so succinctly, positively, and forcefully, quote. Now, we know that the scribes and Pharisees were proud, prejudiced, judgmental, spiteful, hateful, vengeful men who acted as though they were the custodians of God's law. To them, when Jesus said, love your enemies which is a command, by the way, it's an imperative command. It must have seemed naive and foolish to them. They felt it was their right and duty to hate their enemies because in their thinking not to hate those who obviously deserve to be hated would be a breach of the standard of righteousness. But once again, Jesus sets his divine standard against their perverted human standards, And he speaks with authority on this manner. He is the Lord of the law. He says, but I say to you. Now, your English translation doesn't show it. But it is clear in the Greek text. If you translated this literally, it would say, but I, I say to you. Uh, He is emphasizing that he is speaking authoritatively. He is setting himself up as the one who can speak over their against their system, regardless of who their teachers have been and what they have said. It's not just that his teaching was the standard of truth, but that he himself was the standard of truth. One Bible teacher paraphrased what Jesus was saying this way, quote, your great rabbis, Scribes and scholars have taught you to love only those of your own preference and to hate your enemies, but by my own authority, I declare that they are false teachers and have perverted God's revealed truth. The divine truth is my truth, which is that you shall love your enemies. End quote. So that's a pretty powerful concept, isn't it? Let me just stop here and look where I'm at. Yeah, I'm going to have to stop. A little bit early, but you can mark that date down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Bruce, what were those five principles again?
0: That I'm going to cover each week?
1: Yeah, for heading five principles. for.
0: Okay. Love your enemies.
1: No, I mean, what was the heading for them?
0: Oh, this is the divine perspective of Jesus. And and these are five, five uh, you, whatever you want to call them, five principles to correct the faulty love of the Pharisees, whatever you want to call them. Okay. Anything else? What
1: was the other group other than the Sadducees and
0: the Pharisees? The Essenes. E S S E N E S. Yes. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about that. Like,
1: hating what? Loving those who, you know, do what God hates—it's just such the only, the only way that
0: inside of us that we could possibly manage that is through the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, absolutely. There is no possible way to do this, humanly speaking.
1: Yes. It's very hard, but if you don't forgive somebody. When you're basically letting them control your life and your emotions mm-hmm. and your thoughts at all times. Mm-hmm. We watch a lot of these murder things on TV, and some of the people, the mothers, of the victims will say, I will never forgive. Other right. people say, I forgive him, you know, i prayed pray for him and i forgive him. And you look at their countenance, and it's the one that forgives is always the one that seems to be the most at peace.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read a story many years ago. I don't remember all the details now, but it had to do with a, a man who murdered another guy. And they, they were young. They were like in their 20, 20 or so, early 20s. And he murdered this other fellow. And uh, the mother of this other fellow not only forgave him in court, but she visited him in prison. And then uh, he later... He, she was a believer, and he later came to saving faith because of the of the mother of the man he killed. So, Okay, anything else? Marsha?
1: I think after we've gone through the process of forgiving, um, that Satan loves to keep bringing it back to our mother. Mm-hmm. What, what they did
0: to you. It just how can you really forgive them yeah. or even tell you you haven't really forgiven them
1: yes it's definitely a temptation to go so, back
0: to the hanger. okay all right it's a heavy duty lesson isn't it mm-hmm. it is and we're not done jesus is going to tell us how what we're to do all right let's pray father thank you for your word These are difficult things to understand, but as Lisa pointed out, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do this. So we just pray that you would grant us that power, that none of us would be known for hating anyone just because of personal vendettas Lord, make our anger against sin and against your holy countenance. Uh, that, that we we feel offended when people revile you but that we don't feel offended when they revile us Lord I pray now as we go into the worship service that you would help us to focus on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and give praise and honor and glory that is due to him we do pray again for Steve as he teaches again second service to give him the energy that he needs. All these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.